Excellent. If you guys can make your way back to your seats and um, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. We're in a series entitled Seeing Christ in All of Scripture. And uh, this morning we're on the passage in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through 21 together this morning. So let's read God's Word together. Exodus 20, 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray together. Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray for Your power and anointing to come and to touch all of our hearts this morning and revive, refresh, and renew us in the Word. Lord, we thank You so much for giving us new life to all who have trusted in You. I pray that our trust in You would be even deeper as a result of hearing Your Word this morning. May our commitment to follow You and to love You be deeper as well as we look at your law and the giving of your law. We pray that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Well, the first thing by way of introduction to this passage of Scripture in Exodus 20 is that you see here in in, uh, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, in verse 2, the Word of God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first thing that the Lord does is He reminds His people of the Gospel. Before the law is given, He reminds them of His grace. He reminds them of His promises. The the first thing God starts out with when He gives the Ten Commandments is not a command, but rather a reminder of what He has already done for them. And that He is their God. He gives the Gospel before He gives the law. And our obedience to God's commands always flows out from an awareness, brothers and sisters, of our perfect standing that we have through the amazing grace of God and the work of redemption that the Lord has worked for us. The standing that God's people have is that God is their God and that He has delivered them out of the house of slavery, redeeming them with His mighty outstretched arm. And He has brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. And that's always what we should remember first, that God has brought us out of darkness and into His wonderful light. We are to obey Him and to keep His commands and to love Him in that way. As Jesus said, if you love Me, John fourteen fifteen, you will keep My commandments. But we must always remember that He loved us first. The fulfillment of the promise to deliver them out of Egypt was now a reality. And so we should always remember that it's God's kindness that should lead us to repentance. And it's God's amazing grace that should motivate us to obey Him joyfully. Uh, uh, the, the promise precedes the giving of the law. We see this also in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. The Word says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. And this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. No, the gospel precedes the law. The promise precedes the giving of the law. And this is so important that God starts Exodus 20 off, verse 2, with, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. May we remember, brothers and sisters, that we are not under law, but we are under grace. Let that joy fill our heart, even as we look into the law of God and delight in the law of God, and with all of our hearts seek to obey the law of God, motivated by His grace. This is so important for us. So, so vitally important. And so I want to run through the Ten Commandments here. And we're going to look at the first one flowing off of that introduction. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. This is Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. God is the one who redeemed us and delivered us out of the house of slavery. And He's a gracious God. We must also remember, brothers and sisters, that He's a jealous God. Jealous that we would have no other gods before Him. 
Let there be no rivals. I want to ask all of us this morning, what is rivaling God in your heart today? Because He is God and there is no other. This literal translation here is, you shall have no other gods in addition to me, is is literally a good translation there. There should be never sort of a syncretism that unites the worship of God with that of other false deities. The Hindu religion is happy to include Jesus as one of its millions that it worships. And ancient Egypt was known to include the gods of other nations into its pantheon. Later on, Israel included worshiping the false gods of the nations surrounding it into its worship of God. And this is what precipitated the exile. We tend to think that if we don't have a Buddha statue in our house, then we are clear with the command. The first commandment. But whatever is love, feared, delighted in, or depended on more than God, is what we make a God of. Whatever is loved in our life more than God, feared in our life more than God, delighted in in our life more than God, or depended on more than God, is what we make a false God of. You know, you you talk about most what you delight in the most. Let me ask, how much do you talk about God just on your own initiative without prompting? You talk about what you're excited about. You talk about what you're delighted in. All of us do. And I think we can get a good gauge about what is first in our hearts by what we talk about most. And may it be, brothers and sisters of Christ Community Church, that we talk about our Lord God who loved us and gave Himself for us to die on the cross for our sins and was raised to new life. May we celebrate Him and talk about Him and delight in Him, depend on Him, fear Him, and love Him above all things. Amen? We must not allow, brothers and sisters, the creation or the creature to ever take first place In our hearts, we must not put any relationship that we deeply care about on par or ahead of God in our thoughts and in our affections, nor any desire or pleasure. Jesus said you cannot love both God and money. And if you say you love both, you end up displacing God in the end. We must always be passionate about worshiping God exclusively and tenaciously go after and kill anything that starts to grow into a passion in our heart that starts to rival God. One Christian said that our heart is a factory of idols. And even a good thing, even in the Christian's life, even a good thing can be transformed by our hearts into a false God thing if we're not careful. We often think that a false god is going to appear as a very dark and evil thing, but the false gods that plague us are things that we like, things that we enjoy, that rival the Lord in our affections. We must take heed in relation to God's law in this regard. 
Matthew Henry writes that whatever comes short of perfect love, gratitude, reverence, or worship breaks this commandment. So what then? In breaking one commandment, we're guilty of breaking all of them. And I don't know about you, but I'm just through one here and I'm done. Perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus said. Perfection is what God commands and is what is justly demanded. And we are condemned just as we're getting started. The good news is, however, that Abraham believed God. Genesis 15.6 And it was credited to him as righteousness. It was credited to him as a free gift of grace. And the promise was received before the law was given. And let that encourage your heart this morning as you meditate on this first commandment. If God doesn't justify the ungodly, we've got no hope. Because through our own personal obedience to to the law, we cannot be justified before God. Because we fall after law one. We would have no hope of salvation from the performance of God's law. What we needed, friends, what we needed was a man to come who always loved and worshipped God perfectly throughout his whole life, every second of every detail of his life. He loved the Lord God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. That's what we needed. And the good news is, is we have such a man. The man Christ Jesus, the God-man who came who loved and worshipped God perfectly and sacrificed Himself to atone for lawbreakers like you and I. Have you believed in Him, friend? Unbeliever, have you trusted in Him as your only hope of salvation on the final day of judgment? Because no other hope will stand on that final day. You must have Jesus' blood and righteousness covering you, which comes as a free gift of grace when you believe. In Him. Thank God that He's such a God who would send His Son to do such a work for sinners like us. He's amazing, isn't He? He's amazing. Let's look at the second one. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. God is so great and awesome that the moment you go to make an image of Him, you fail to convey all of who He is. So do not even attempt it, the Scriptures say. The greatest of artists would fail to convey all of who God is. He's so glorious. In fact, it must be a real image that just brings God down if ever an image is made. There is, Matthew Henry writes, it is forbidden to make any image or picture of the deity in any form for any purpose or to worship any creature, image, or picture. But the spiritual import of this command extends much further. All kinds of superstition are here forbidden. And the using of mere human inventions in the worship of God. Mankind is prone to worship images rather than God who is the Spirit. And who is Spirit. The veneration of images and statues portraying the Creator. the likeness of anything in the heavens above or earth beneath that is in the water. 
under the earth. The work of man's hands is something we are forbidden to do. Now listen, this doesn't forbid art, but it does forbid the worship of images and the superstitious veneration of them. And this was rampant throughout the centuries in the Roman Catholic Church to venerate and worship images rather than to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We worship in spirit and in truth, the Gospel of John says. And these are the worshipers that the Father seeks. It's important to note this, brothers and sisters, that God's people are people of the ear. We hear God through His Word. And we don't give way to focusing on the material and image worship. We hear God. We read, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. So one day we're going to see Jesus face to face when we get to heaven. And our faith shall become sight. But for now, we are people of the ear who worship Him in spirit and in truth. We hear God, and we hear His truth. So let us make note of that and obey the second commandment. Because, as it says here, He is a jealous God. Talked about this a moment ago, but God is the highest and the greatest good. And jealousy is not a bad thing when it flows out from a perfectly holy God. When one of His creatures that He created for His glory rebels against Him, it pains God to His heart. And how much more so one of His own chosen people whom He's delivered out of the bondage of Egypt. He's a jealous God over His people. Even as a godly husband or a wife is jealous about their spouse's love. God is not unjust. He's jealous. He's holy and He cannot tolerate sin. And He regards the worship of idols as hatred toward Him even as He regards friendship with the world as enmity with Himself. So we must not, brothers and sisters, trifle with sin or minimize idolatry or worldliness because God is jealous over us with a strong love that is holy and beautiful and right and good. So let us take that to heart as we move to commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 7. The name of the Lord is to be taken up in reverence on our mouths and never to be spoken lightly or in vain. The command speaks to the greatness of our God (coughs) and the greatness of His name. We should never speak His name lightly or rashly or irreverently or unnecessarily. Or without sufficient cause, Matthew Poole says. There is no light appealing to God. Never using His name as a curse. Never using it as a false oath. God is to be worshipped and praised. And His name is never to be used in a profane and an ordinary way. So you don't just speak about God ever in sort of an ordinary way. That's sort of what the heart of this commandment is getting at because God is great and awesome and glorious and majestic and holy and His name is to be regarded as holy. The Jews called the name Yahweh 
the, quote, ineffable name. And they rarely took that name up on their lips, lest they accidentally take it up in vain. And not even know it. And in our day, where mottos like, quote, Jesus is my homeboy, and other evidences of casualness with God are seen as desirable by many, we would do well to remember that Jesus is transcendent. God is transcendent as well as imminent. And I love any motto that speaks to the imminence of the Lord and Jesus being our friend. But we must also remember that He is the Holy God before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. So He should be revered. We should understand His transcendence and His imminence. And we should walk before Him in trembling and in fear, for our God is, as Hebrews says, a consuming fire. Do you regard Him as such? Do you walk before Him as such? Is there a reverence as you come before God? Or is there more of a casual walking that you do? You know, I was pondering this commandment and I was thinking how many people use the name of Jesus in their lifetime only as a curse word. And I thought, oh, how sad. And such would I have been if it wasn't for the amazing grace of God. Saying the Lord's name in vain. It's saying it only in vain. Aren't you so thankful, brothers and sisters, that we're here this morning singing the name of Jesus. And because of what He's done in our life, there is no greater or sweeter name that comes off of our lips. I'm so thankful for our glorious risen Savior. May we take His name up on our lips with reverence and holy fear. Point four, which is remember the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The people of God under the old covenant were to keep every seventh day or Saturday as a day of rest. And the reason God gives for this is that in six days He made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. It's because of this that He blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is beautiful and it shows God's goodness in making sure that God's people were always reminded of how He created the world. And also, that there is a day when we cease our labors and enter into rest. We must remember that He created the Sabbath for man. Not man for the Sabbath. God cares about you. He cares about your rest. And how do we, as the children of God under the new covenant, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy and honor this commandment? The Sabbath command, it's important to note this, is spoken of differently under the new covenant than under the old covenant. Believers in Christ keep the Sabbath in a different way than we did, than the people of God did under the old covenant. They keep it by resting from their works. And believing in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Who is their eternal Sabbath rest. 
Hebrews 4 verse 3 says that we who have believed have entered that rest. We've entered that rest already. And we keep it, we keep the Sabbath by remembering that not only has Christ fulfilled it, He is our rest from all the labor of our hands. There is also a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. Hebrews 4 verse 8 says that there is a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. That's pointing forward. The new heavens and the new earth. Heaven with Christ when we get there is the time, brothers and sisters, when we will fully enter the rest of the children of God that the Sabbath command ultimately pointed to. We will enjoy Christ, our true Sabbath rest, forever in the true promised land. A promised land that delivers a rest that Canaan, the first promised land under Joshua or Yeshua under the old covenant, could only point to in pale comparison. Under the new covenant, the Lord raised His Son Jesus up on the first day of the week and not the seventh. And so the church, it's important for you to note this, the church began to meet on the first day of the week and called it the Lord's Day and worshipped Christ on the first day of the week instead of on Saturdays. You see this in Acts chapter 20, verse 7 when they gathered together to worship on the first day of the week, and also in Revelation 1.10, when the Apostle John said that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. There's been a legitimate shift from Sabbath to Lord's day under the new covenant, and that's why the church has rejoiced to worship on the first day of the week, commemorating the day that Christ rose from the grave. The early church recognized that Christ fulfilled the Sabbath command in a unique way, and that the original Sabbath command pointed to the ultimate rest, being in heaven with Jesus forever, our eternal rest. And so now, we keep the Sabbath by believing in Jesus. Looking to Him, trusting in Him and His finished work on the cross, and not in our own works. You may have some who come and tell you that you're not worshiping God, on the right day of the week. And will take great issue with which day you choose to worship the Lord, but do not be troubled by them. But remember Colossians 2.17 that says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so let us remember Jesus today and fix our eyes upon Him and trust in Him with all of our hearts, looking forward to the eternal rest that we are heading to after death. And by doing that, we keep the Sabbath and walk in obedience to it under the new covenant, the covenant of grace. I do believe that it's an important principle to uphold, not because we're bound to it under the law, but because it's just a good principle to make sure that we take at least one day of the week to rest. For the Lord's ordained and desires our rest. And if we go on and on and on behind the plow without any day to rest and refresh our bodies, we will break down. And so let us honor the Lord and the principle 
of the Scriptures and make sure that we take our rest and refreshment as the Lord gave to His people. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. Now, this begins the second table of the Ten Commandments. Commandments one through four, if you notice, deal with loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you go to commandment five with honoring your father and mother, all of a sudden, now you're transitioning to part two of the two greatest commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, these first four are connected with loving God. These are dealing with loving your neighbor as yourself. Charles Ellicott writes, of all of our duties to our fellow men, the first and the most fundamental is our duty toward our parents, which lies at the root of all of our social relations and is the first of which we naturally become conscious. Honor, reverence, and obedience are due to parents from the position in which they stand to their children. I want to read this reference from Proverbs 23. 22. It complements this command very well. The Word says, Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she's old. No matter what they ever do to offend us, no matter how much they tempt us to struggle, we are called to honor our parents. And it's on us to make sure that we do everything we can, brothers and sisters, to obey the Word of the Lord. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. There's a beauty in Scripture and there's also a a chastening word to any of us who would seek to minimize the duty and the call to honor our father and our mother. This, This is a promise in Ephesians that's replicated in the New Testament. And one of the things I want to highlight here is how do you know when specific commandments are meant to be continued under the New Covenant, the way you know that is that they're replicated in the New Testament. When you see commandments in the Old Testament replicated and spoken again by Jesus or the apostles in the New Testament, there's a continuity that continues on and sometimes even a greater clarity and a greater wattage that Jesus shines on the holy law of God. In Ephesians 6 verse 2, The promise comes with this command that it may go well with you. The long life and the quote, it going well with you that this command lays out is important for us to take to heart. And we see when it wasn't honored in the Old Testament, the way that it affected people's lives. In the case of Absalom, King David's son who rebelled against his father, We see that long life was cut short for him in connection with his dishonoring of his father and it did not go well with him. The promise is not meant to perplex us in some cases where temporal life is cut short even though this command is obeyed. And here I'll just use the example of Jesus who perfectly honored his mother and his father and yet he died young in obedience to his heavenly father. But isn't it so precious, brothers and sisters, to read about how He took care of His mother Mary's future. And He took care of her well, even as He was suffering on the cross, by seeing to it that John would take her into His care after He 
died, and then rose again and ascended. He honored His mother Mary so perfectly in a way that really touches our hearts even here this morning. It may not have seemed to go well for Jesus in the short term. However, He was vindicated by His Father and raised from the dead and He lives forevermore. And it goes well for Jesus right now. He's on His throne. And it goes well for all in this room who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us honor our mother and our father. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Jesus further elaborates on this commandment in Matthew chapter 5 when He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Brothers and sisters, the wicked will not dwell in the land, the Scriptures say. Murder is a particularly heinous sin because its consequences are so far-reaching. And it only took one generation, as John mentioned, with Adam and Eve being born into the garden and blessed and just enjoying. And then they sinned and entered into the fall. And within one generation, their own son, Cain, murdered their other son, Abel. And we see that the, man, the heart of man, Jesus says, it begins with the sin of anger in the heart. So friends, let us take great stock. Young people, take stock of the anger that resides in your heart and Don't comfort yourself thinking, well, I'm not as violent as the people on the news. No, brothers and sisters, if we call somebody a fool and we don't repent and trust in Jesus, we're liable to the hell of fire. We must recognize the seriousness of breaking God's law. And we must not only look at murder, but we must also look at the anger of our heart and of our thought life as well. 1 John 4 says, whoever loves God loves his brother. Beloved, let us love one another and let anger and wrath be put far away from us for these are improper for God's holy people. Let us remember, thou shalt not murder. Commandment 7, you shall not commit adultery. Loving your neighbor as yourself means not committing adultery. God's law is an expression of who God is. He's good and faithful and He keeps His promises. And He desires us to do the same. Scriptures elsewhere call adultery or sexual immorality taking fire in your lap. Taking fire in your lap is going to cause you to be burned. The sins of sexual immorality and the sins of adultery burn us. And they have temporal consequences as well as eternal ones if we don't repent. In the Scriptures, in the wisdom literature, it says that God hates feet that are swift to run after evil. And yet by nature, isn't that so often what we are like, brothers and sisters? Still, let us repent over the lust of the eyes and the adultery of the heart that Jesus preaches against. And let us cry out 
O Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Job said, I will set no evil thing before my eyes. And he also said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. We are called to guard our eyes and not set anything evil before our eyes. We can commit adultery or immorality not just physically, but we can do it through what we watch, what we choose to entertain us. Brothers and sisters, may we walk in the fear of the Lord in these things. May we repent over the things that we regard as secret when nobody else is watching. And may we go to God on our knees and repent over our immorality and any unfaithfulness to God and to our spouse. Any deceit that we are living in. Let us walk in the light and come out into the light and know that the Lord will bless as you confess and forsake your sins. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Commandment 8, you shall not steal. Loving your neighbor as yourself means you don't steal from him. Ephesians 4 says, let the thief steal no longer. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The Old Testament law in Exodus 20 says don't steal. But the New Testament talks about that we're meant not just to not steal, but we're meant to be generous people. Generous to help in anybody's time of need. Proverbs 11 verse 1 says this about the Lord. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. That deals with stealing. We want to make sure that we always, never even take shortcuts in any area in our life, in our business dealings, in our tax dealings, in any area financially we are meant To not steal. And wherever that is present, let us repent and turn away from that knowing Jesus will forgive us. So we see that this is the heart of God in Scriptures. And where we see this with Jesus is in in Philippians 2, Jesus comes and He doesn't take, but He serves. And you know what He does? It actually says in Philippians 2 that He empties Himself. He doesn't live his life taking from others. He empties himself of everything of who he is so that he might have brought you and I to God this morning. Aren't you so thankful for how generous our king is? Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor, Proverbs 25 says, is like a war club or a sword. Or a sharp arrow. And in Matthew 26, the word says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. We should always bear truthful witness about our neighbor. For false witness, lying, breaks one of God's commandments. Lying is a very serious sin and 
In Revelation, it says that all liars will have their portion in the lake of fire. If there's areas where there's deceit in our lives, let us bring it out into the light, brothers and sisters. Let us not live in the darkness, but rather walk in the light. As 1 John 1 says, False witness, it's like a weapon of war, Proverbs said. It's a sharp arrow, it hurts, it cuts, it wounds, it can actually destroy the good name of a good man or woman or a son or a daughter or a neighbor. Jesus knew this sharp sting the night He was betrayed. The chief priests were actually seeking to gather false witnesses in order to put Jesus Christ, the innocent one, to death. Now how evil this was. Not just to seek false witnesses against Christ, but to do so in order that He might be condemned to death. They did this knowing it would provide the necessary legal loopholes so that they could do wickedness while keeping their good name. They wanted to do this evil act without anyone knowing that they were the false ones. Oh, brothers and sisters, how much more amazing does it make it that our precious Savior willingly suffered this humiliation without bringing down the twelve legions of angels that He could have brought down on top of them. He willingly suffered at the hands of liars that we all in this room might be brought to the way of truth. Aren't you so thankful for what Jesus has done for you and me? Oh, believe in Him. Turn to Him if you haven't already. Trust in Him. For in Him there's life. The final command, thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbors. Psalm 119 says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Hebrews 13.5 New Testament. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I love those verses. Brothers and sisters, the opposite of coveting is contentment. Contentment. Pray for it. I was thinking about this just the other day as I was meditating on this command. I was thinking how much discontentment, even as a believer, has just dogged me in my Christian life. And I was just musing the other day, thanking God actually in prayer, that I've just seen Him make me more and more over time a more and more contented man. He can work miracles of sanctification in our lives. Areas where we feel like, I don't know if I'm ever going to grow in this area, this side of heaven. This would have been one of those commands for me that would have just, oh Lord, coveting. How do I stop desiring what other people have? And grading my life based off of what other people have. Rather than finding my joy totally in Christ. Friend, when you have Jesus Christ, you have everything. When you have Christ dwelling in your heart by faith, you have all that really matters in the end. We should not let our souls be given to selfish gain, but rather to God's testimonies. God supplies all that we need. So to covet 
is to desire more than what God has ordained for your life. And this is where the sin of comparison comes in. And we compare our life to other people. You see in the Proverbs, the Word of God says, fix your gaze straight in front of you and don't look to the right and to the left. The reason is, is because we're all too apt to play the comparison game, either to the negative or to the positive. And we grade our life based off of our assessment of how we're doing compared to other people. And we're either arrogant over someone or we're discontentment under someone and we struggle. May God give us all grace to experience the rare jewel of Christian contentment as one Puritan author wrote about it. The grace to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, so that we might be kept safe from piercing ourselves with many pains. It actually says in the Scripture that those who desire to get rich pierce themselves. They actually do harm to themselves with many pains. Christ is so awesome and good that He not only forbids coveting anything that's our neighbor's, but He actually dies for the sin of covetousness that abides in the heart of every man and every woman that cries out to Him. Oh, brothers and sisters, so what, so what now? Just in kind of heading into the close here before the worship team returns. We've gotten through the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. Application number one in verse 18 is this is the effect of the ministry of the law. The only thing that it can do for sinners is condemn us. And the only consequence of it, the right consequence, is for us to stand far off from our God who dwells in the midst of thunders and flashes of lightning and causes the mountains to smoke. Keep your distance is the only word for a sinner underneath of the law. But the good news of the Gospel is this, that the faraway ones have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Though there was once distance, the veil has been torn in two, and now there is access to come before the throne of grace with confidence. Aren't you so thankful for the gospel of grace, which causes there to be not a distance before us and God, but now we are actually one with Christ Jesus. Let us rejoice in the glorious good news of the gospel. And in relation to application from this passage, look at this next verse. You speak to us, and we will listen, the people said to Moses. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. And it says again that the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I want to draw attention to the category of the testing of our faith. God tests the faith of the people of Israel here. And we must recognize that the testing of our faith is a good thing. God tests us here, it says in the Scriptures, that the fear of Him might be before us so that we might turn away from sin and sin no more. James 1 in the New Testament says that the testing of our faith 
produces steadfastness. And if we are steadfast under trial and stand the test, we will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him. So the design of God for the Israelites in testing them was not for their harm. God always tests us to prove us. Tests us to strengthen us. Satan's designs are to try to break us. But God's are to strengthen us and prove us. And cause our faith to stand even stronger. So He is for us. And for our good. He's not, to, he's not hurting us. But He's teaching us and doing us good. Teaching us the fear of the Lord. And let us remember the good heart of God in the testings of our faith that are even going on right now. May we fear Him and trust Him and obey Him as we see Him in all of His holiness and in all of His love for us. If I can have the worship band return quietly. I want to accent one final truth in verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near. What this passage highlights, brothers and sisters, is the need for a mediator between God and man. Moses was able to go forth onto the mountain and to draw near to God when the others could not. And yet Moses was a sinner who later was not allowed to go into the promised land due to his anger. Do you remember that? When he struck the rock instead of speaking to it as God instructed him to when he was getting the water for the people. What we need is a perfect mediator between God and man. And thank God that He sent Jesus. Because now we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Because we don't have an imperfect mediator, but we have a perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again to bring us to God. Let us stand and worship Him in closing.